Hi, this is Queen Anne's County Commissioner Jim Moran, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, we are recording remotely again. COVID cases continue to spike here in Maryland, in the region, and across the country. But we're back to remote. How are things at the Sanderson household? Everybody is okay here. We're like sort of making plans for continued homeschooling and all those sorts of things. So uh, doing what lots of Americans are doing right now. How about your gang? Everybody's doing well. And speaking of that, it's important to pay attention to the Conduit Street blog. We have all your coverage on the latest schools deciding whether or not to to do in person or stick virtual. It's all on the Conduit Street blog. But Michael, today I'm excited to hear from another state. We talked to California some time ago, and today we're going to hear from Arizona. And we'll hear about how they're handling COVID, what's the legislative landscape out there. And to help us do that, we are very pleased this week to have a special guest, Jennifer Marson. She is the executive director of the Arizona Association of Counties. Jennifer, we're glad to have you with us. Thanks for being here. Thanks for inviting me. Happy to do it. Well, Kevin, I've I've had a pleasure to get to know Jen through our professional sort of association or self-help group or whatever you want to call it. Uh, but uh, we have we have an opportunity to get together as directors of the state associations that represent counties. And it's it's interesting. There's, there's tiny organizations and there's huge ones. Uh, both Maryland and Arizona lie somewhere in the middle. So, so we have found some common ground to talk about issues and so forth. And I'm delighted to have you join the podcast, Jen. Thank you. So first of all, Jennifer, tell us a little bit about the Arizona Association of Counties. Who are the members of the association? I know it's a little bit different in Arizona than it is here in Maryland. You actually have two associations. Is that right? We do. So at ACO, that's how we pronounce our acronym, A-A-C-O, we work with all of the county elected positions. um, And while the supervisors, you may call them commissioners back in Maryland, but here the the supervisors, um, they have their separate association, the County Supervisors Association, but they're still members of ours. So there are 10 elected county positions in Arizona, and we work with all of them just the supervisors a little bit and everybody else a lot. <laughs> so you represent like like groups like the the county treasurers and whoever, whoever else like the district attorneys or whatever is yeah the so officers yeah traditional officers row okay. officers doesn't go over so well here in Arizona gotcha. but uh, so assessors attorneys clerks of the court constables JPs recorders school superintendents sheriffs supervisors and treasurers that would be a pretty interesting concatenated group in maryland um those folks are all uh, sort of running their disparate ways uh, here in our state but uh, not under one roof like they are in arizona but it, it's it's a state-by-state thing right yeah and you know the advantage that we have is that massive in terms of like land mass but it's much easier to corral 15 county sheriffs than 200 county sheriffs in a state like Texas or something. (laughs) Sounds like you're doing a lot of the same work that we're doing here in Maryland. 
And to be honest with you, Jen, I mean, with all the stuff in the news recently, we really wanted to talk to you today to get some insight from you as a quote-unquote swing state. Arizona is certainly a swing state. We all know that the election has made headlines over the past few weeks. And we're really involved with elections here in Maryland. Counties run the elections. And I know that you all are pretty involved in elections there too, right? Absolutely. So the office that I mentioned, the county recorders, they run elections in tandem with uh, election directors at the county level. And we work with both of those groups. Right. And, and in particular, I, I'll confess, I'm interested that you personally, you know, in addition to your role with the association, you also have been really hands-on with election administration and oversight too, right? Yeah, I'm I'm super nerdy and I think elections is one of my favorite areas. So I actually started as a, just a regular old poll worker back in, I don't know, 2002, 2003, something like that. But then I actually went through the training that the state requires of every election employee to become a certified election officer. So I've been certified with the state through since 2005. And I've been what we call troubleshooting. I've been a troubleshooter since 2007, which is like, like a super glorified poll worker that travels amongst different locations. You don't stay at one location all day. I answer questions. I fix equipment. I just help manage the flow of traffic and people and information. And it's totally geeky and totally amazing. Well, I mean, super nerdy, totally geeky, totally amazing. That's basically the description of the Conduit Street podcast. So now (laughs) our listeners are completely on board for why we were so excited to bring you aboard as a guest. So now, okay, we've got we've got Arizona, and it's interesting to hear about Arizona and the swing state. Now the plot thickens, but like they're on the ground for one of the states that's been in the news and in the headlines. Now we're talking, right? <laughs> yeah, and but it's I gotta tell you, it's so weird to hear Arizona referred to as a swing state because <laughs> I mean I I've lived here my whole life. I was born here. And Arizona is really more libertarian than anything. It's a lot of just leave me alone and let me do my thing, right? <laughs> um, but obviously, we've been red for my whole life. This is the first time we've really seen a, a big swath of blue come along. So it's, it's new territory. <laughs> the shift in Arizona has been really interesting to watch. And, you know, with a state whose elections are so closely watched, I mean, you have a competitive U.S. Senate seat plus really, really close polling for the president, the stakes are really high for Arizona in 2020, right? And that has to show on the ground there as well. Absolutely. I mean, it was a little bit of a shock in, what was it, 2016 when we elected Senator Sinema, you know, an openly bisexual Democrat to a Senate seat. That was crazy bananas. And then, (laughs) you know, and then we had the runoff between McSally and, uh, and Mark Kelly and he, he kind of blew it out of the water. She, she wasn't that close. And it was a, it's been several months since anyone thought she was going to be close. So the, the election of Mark Kelly, uh, Senator-elect Mark Kelly, wasn't a surprise come election day. So I, I guess um, to set the stage a, a little bit uh, and also to connect back to some of the policy issues we've talked about here, can you give us a little bit of the lay of the land, maybe in, in terms of the Arizona law policy. So wh- where are you with, um, do your voters get to do early voting? Do you have voting by mail and, and stuff like that? Yeah, we're a huge vote by mail state. 
Uh, you don't have to have a reason. Uh, we actually, through some legislation through ACO, uh, many years ago, we established the permanent early voting list, the acronym we pronounce like PEVIL. It should be PEVIL, I know, but we say PEVIL, just go with it. Um, and so you can sign up to be on the PEVIL, and that means for every election for which you are eligible, you will get a ballot in the mail. We had a lot of people sign up for PEVIL this year who hadn't been signed up before because they have the ability. If you don't want to get a ballot by mail every election, you can sign up previous to each election and just get a ballot for the next upcoming election. So we have a couple different ways to do um, early mail or early ballots in Arizona. We have some of the highest early voting figures um, that I'm aware of. And I love to use what Yavapai County, um, where if you're familiar with Arizona, it's where Prescott is, which is like between Phoenix and Flagstaff. Mm-hmm. Um, Yavapai County is a very red county, um, always has been. And they have more than 83% of all of their registered voters are on the permanent early voter list. What? 80? What? Wow. Yep. Okay. Are you blowing, you're blowing the doors off. I, mean, I thought you were going to tell me it was 25% and I was <laughs> ready to be impressed. Nope. It's over 80%. It's, it's crazy. And they're a great example county because, you know, sometimes we get into these legislative hearings and we get into it with legislators about how ballot by mail is horrible and blah, blah, blah. And they're Republican legislators. And I say, you need to talk to your colleagues in Yavapai County who've been voting by mail since, you know, 1998. Right. I mean, that's really interesting that the universal voter list and and to get the ballot mailed to you you can sort of opt in for for every election that you're eligible for i think that's that's a really interesting way of going about it and not having to worry every single election to go ahead and request a ballot but you're already opted in on that universal list is that has that been around for a long time in arizona or is that i mean how did that come about i'm really interested in that specifically so the PEVIL list, I think that was legislation in, I want to say, 2006 or 2007. So while we had had mail-in balloting before then, the the permanent list happened, you know, 2007-ish, let's say. And that, that, that list is maintained by the state? Is that the way that works in Arizona? No, elections are strictly the function of local government. So the county, rec- the elected county recorder in each county is responsible for voter registration and early balloting, and thus the permanent early voter list. So I, I guess with, with a, a matter of policy that um, I didn't even think about being important before this election, but now everybody, you know, everybody who's in the election world talks about this. Um, when are the election uh, directors and staff able to open mailed-in ballots and start counting them in Arizona? Do you do that before election day, or is that a later process? We do, but I want to parse your question a little bit, because there's a difference between opening and tabulating, Ah. right? So we, uh, ACO, again, passed legislation in 2019. We used to be able to start tabulating a week prior to the election. In 2019, we changed it to make it two weeks. And so now we are tabulating. We're starting to tabulate two weeks prior to the election. But the opening happens before the tabulation. So we'll get the ballots signature verified. They go through the verification process to make sure that the signature on the ballot envelope matches the signature in the voter registration file. And we'll get all of that squared away. And then we simply essentially stack the ballots and get them ready to be run through the tabulator on that a two-week outdate. Got it. So, so that, but that does put you in a spot where you've got that stuff counted and more or less ready to go by election Tuesday, 
as opposed to some states that have laws that work in, in a different direction, like everything just sits in stacks and you have to do the opening, verifying, and tabulating all starting on Tuesday, you're, you, you've got the running start. Correct. And because we have such a high percentage of vote by mail participants, the numbers that are released by Arizona statute at 8 p.m. on election evening, those are all early ballots. Those initial numbers don't include anybody who voted at the polls. Right. And that's interesting because, as Michael was alluding to earlier, in a lot of states, it's the complete opposite, right? They're not allowed to start their canvas. They're not allowed to open the ballots until the polls close on Election Day. Here in Maryland, we, we were able to allow that canvas to start earlier, which really, really helped. Of course, we've never done this before. So we are behind, you know, behind the times when it comes to Arizona in terms of mail-in voting. But I know Arizona is a leader with mail-in voting. It's been very successful there. And it sounds like it was successful there again uh, this go-round. But I'm interested, too, in this troubleshooter role what is Tuesday like generally? You said you go around from polling place to polling place, you're answering questions. How was it this year? This year I decided to move myself around. So I'm going, starting from here on out, I'm going to visit all of the counties and work as a troubleshooter in each of the different counties. And so this year I was in Pinal County, which is a medium-sized county just south of Phoenix, between Phoenix and Tucson. Again, if you know Arizona, everybody was totally used to COVID, right? Everybody had masks. A lot of voters were wearing gloves. Um, obviously the polls were set up with extra of all of that stuff and cleaning all the time. Um, but nobody had COVID questions. The questions were all about the election process or, you know, why am I not on the list or, oh, I have to go to a different polling place, which are the questions we would get in the COVID. There weren't questions about COVID. Let's put it that way. And, and you mentioned masks. Arizona does not have a statewide mask mandate, correct? That's been left up to the local governments. That's correct. Yeah. Cities of city mayors or county boards of supervisors can inf- can implement those, but it's not statewide. So, so, Jen, one of the things that I think our Maryland listeners would be interested in is just sort of the what it feels like to be relevant in the presidential process. Um, you know, we 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 have some Marylanders who probably pick up Washington, D.C. or Pittsburgh media that's targeted for nearby states that are more relevant than Maryland. We're just we have red and blue parts of Maryland, but this is a state that wasn't really in any doubt. Over in Arizona, everybody knew it was going to be at least relatively close, maybe not as nail bitery as it's turned into. But (laughs) what's it been like for the for the weeks or so leading up to the election um, in the media and the newspapers and even on on election day. Walk us through some of that. Yeah, you know, it was really interesting this year. There was such a push for the Senate race way early on. And not that the presidential race didn't matter, but I think a lot of people thought president is a foregone conclusion. We're going to be red. So there was a lot of money in the state for the Senate race. But then as the polling came out and Arizona was, you know, the president presidential race was polling a lot closer than really regular people ever thought that it would. Right. Not in the no people, but regular people. And so then the money just it was, I mean, it was everywhere. You could listen to the radio or watch TV without some sort of ad. Literally every ad was political. There was maybe like one beer ad and then everything else was were political ads, no matter what you were watching. Um, on the ground, as I said, I've been doing this election stuff for a really long time. I have never seen as many observers 
We have laws that allow for people to be official party observers at the polling place. Hardly, that has hardly ever been taken advantage of, even in 2008, which was a, quote, historic election, right? This year, I had observers in every single polling place that I went to. Wow. Yeah. I thought maybe we'd see an uptick, but from what I understand so far, there, there hasn't really been anything out of, the, out of the ordinary in terms of more people wanting to observe. But we know that counting is continuing in lots of places, including Arizona. Anything interesting or unusual happening through all that process? I mean, at least from where you sit, and especially as an election nerd and troubleshooter? <laughs> I mean, from where I sit, everything's going fine. If you talk to regular people, the counting is full of fraud, right? <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, it's a ridiculous argument that's not based in fact at all. We've had our, the, it, this is all based in Maricopa County, I shouldn't say all, but predominantly, right? Maricopa County, so you, let me give you a little backstory. In 2016, a Democrat unseated a longstanding Republican county recorder. And that threw the legislature into a tailspin because they needed to put some, you know, they needed to rein him in, so to speak. And so because he is still the recorder, now he lost this election, so he won't be the recorder in January. Um, because of who he is and what party he's from, there must be fraud in order for Democrats to win in Arizona, in, a, in, in order for Trump to win in Arizona. And so that's what has fueled a lot of this fire um, associated with the protests coming for the counting or anything like that. For me, someone who helps write every single election law that goes through the state, the counting is happening the, exactly the way that it's supposed to. It's being audited by both parties, by all three parties, quite frankly. Um, it's been logic and accuracy tested. I mean, it's happening the way it's supposed to happen. And the just finished match the machine counts. Supposed to happen. So we're doing it right. <laughs> so, so just um, you mentioned a third party and you mentioned that the, the state has some libertarian sensibilities. Are, are third parties relevant players or independent voters relevant players? I mean, independents, I'm sure, are, are an important factor. But do you have uh, third party candidates who actually, um, you know, vigorously contest elections and get meaningful numbers and so forth? Is that a common thing out there? It's a common thing for there to be contestations, but they're not, they're not um, going to go anywhere. We have a lot of independent candidates who make progress. And our registration, I mean, I don't know it off the top of my, it's, it's about a third, a third, a third, Republican, mm. Dem, and other OTH, we call here. And while the Libertarian Party is a recognized political party here in Arizona, and they do field candidates, they have never, ever had a shot. Got it. All right, similar, similar to here, but we'll go ahead and take a break there, and we'll come back and talk about some issues on the ballot in Arizona some of the main priorities that ACO is working on, and more, all that after the break. Hey, Conduit Street fans. We just got through audit season, and I bet many of your governments are sitting on a long-term liability for retiree health insurance. Many counties and cities are looking for a solution to help them save today's funds towards tomorrow's costs. MAKO has created a cost-saving investment trust service for counties, libraries, community colleges, and our municipal friends as well. If you join the MAKO Investment Trust, you share all the overhead costs with multiple participants, you gain access to an A-team of investment and fiscal advisors, 
and you benefit from a portfolio designed around your needs. For more information, click on the links in the show notes for this episode. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale back here with Michael Sanderson and today a special guest, Jen Marson from the Arizona Association of Counties. Jen, we talked a little bit about your your fascinating, quite frankly, role on the front lines and making elections work there in Arizona. We want to switch gears a little bit and talk about some policy issues in your state because I'm sure there is some real overlap here. We've all been watching ballot questions and we talked uh-huh. a little bit about this when we did a podcast right after election day. Not everything was completely finalized, but we walked through things that we had been watching. Um, so Arizona was among a handful of states where adult use cannabis was on the ballot. And I guess we all basically know what happens when Americans get their chance to vote on. They generally vote in favor. So um, interested in your take on, on that ballot question. Was that part of what drove people to the polls as well? Um, hard to say. Like, Cannabis has had a really interesting history in Arizona. We actually first legalized it back in 1996, believe it or not, um, because, but because of a small drafting error using the word prescribed instead of recommended, it never, it, there was a federal conflict and it couldn't be um, fully implemented. Right. So there's been a couple of bites at the apple since 1996, and then with more than 60% of the vote, it passed this time. It's definitely sort of been a long time coming, if you will. Uh, it's a, basically it's a 16% sales tax on marijuana. It's for 21 mm-hmm. and over. Um, if you're under 21 and you get caught, it's now a civil penalty and not a criminal penalty. And as soon as Prop 207 was by, you know, overwhelmingly going to pass, the county attorney's offices for, for all of our counties sort of dropped all of the charges associated with, um, with pot possession because 207 is going to win the day and those won't be prosecuted anymore. Right. Do, do you think you'll end up with a second wave of you know, like expungements and so forth for, for you know, people who, who are right now serving for possession and the like you know, in relatively recent time? When Maryland passed a law to decriminalize small possessions, that, that turned out to be a subsequent ripple effect here. Yeah, I'm certain that we will see something like that. But the wrinkle in Arizona is that we we do have a citizen initiative process, and that's how this item made it to the ballot. And so we also have what we call a voter protection. So items that are passed um, by the voters cannot be undone by the legislature. They can only further the purpose. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, you know, that's a double-edged sword, right, depending on mm. how the drafting of the proposition is. Um, this one is, from a lobbyist perspective, this one is drafted pretty good. There's not a lot of huge holes in terms of how statute works and how you have to craft it to make it work. But yeah, this was a citizen initiative, as was the other ballot measure that passed uh, this year as well. It's interesting. I mean, the, the citizen initiative process something we see a lot out West. We don't have that here in Maryland. I think it's interesting there in Arizona, you know, legalizing adult use cannabis, it came through the citizen initiative. It wasn't in a bill. So most states, we've seen this happen through initiative, be on the ballot, whether or not voters want to do this. One state, I think Michigan, did this through legislation. 
Was there any talk about potentially trying to do this with a bill instead of, you know, through a citizen initiative process? Is there any appetite in the legislature to do something like that now that Michigan has sort of done that and other states could follow suit? I mean, here in Maryland, this is something that we're talking about. I think we expect this to be done soon-ish. It's only a matter of whether or not it's on the ballot in 22 or whether or not the General Assembly just passes a bill. Um, I don't think there's any shot of our Republican-controlled legislature to do something on their own. Then that's why the citizen initiative, that's why they went that route. Yeah. Hmm. So I, I, I guess, I mean, that's, that's interesting to me. Did, they, did the, the provision that passed in Arizona allow any flexibility locally? I mean, I know some of the places that have done this have let a, a jurisdiction opt out by, you know, by some process. Is there any such thing in Arizona now? No, there's not. And and one of the reasons that um, could get a little wonky here for a second, one of the reasons that our legislature doesn't have the appetite is we have a lot of very conservative religious members of our legislature, and it's their religion that prevents them from, or this is what they tell us, right? Mm-hmm. That It's because of that why they can't vote for something that would legalize drugs. And so there's, there's t- enough of those folks that they wouldn't have the votes without being able to swing them and they can't be swung. All right. I, I think we had some similar contours in the politics of state license gambling. To we, mm. we eventually moved in the direction of having first slot machines and then full-on casino gambling. But in the process of getting there, uh, the the sort of the religious element in opposition was itself a meaningful component, a a different debate than those who just felt, I think this is the wrong way to do it, or I'd rather raise this money through taxes or, or whatever. Uh, So that's, you know, that's, that's, it's a, it's a different contour in a political debate when, if you have those sort of like deeply held beliefs, as opposed to, I don't know, for, for lack of a better word, the more practical things. Right. And we, we have that same gambling conversation, but we have um, 22 tribes uh, here in Arizona, and many of the tribes have um, gambling endeavors on their land, but not in non-tribal land. Right, right. Interesting. And, and we know education is a hot topic here in Maryland, how we're funding our schools, paying teachers, etc., I know it's a hot topic in Arizona, too. There was also a tax provision before the voters this election. Can you talk a little bit about that and how it ties into education? Yeah, so Prop 208, again, a 200 number means it's a citizen initiative here in Arizona. So put on the ballot by the people. They called it Invest in Ed, and it passed just over 51%. So pretty Mm. close. Um, It's basically a 3.5% income tax surcharge. If as a single person you make over 250 or as a married couple you make over 500 and the 3.5% only applies to anything over those thresholds, not the initial 250 or 500. So it's a personal income tax payment. And I say that because a lot of the uh, no arguments that we saw in the media were this is a tax on small business. I'm not an uh, accountant, but I guess it depends how you file your business taxes. Are you a corporation of some kind or are you counting it as your personal income? If you're counting it as your personal income, then yeah, it's, it's right. going to hit you. You know, um, It's supposed to bring in about, I don't know, somewhere between 800 and $825 million a year. And that's all for teacher salaries, support staff salaries, 
uh, career and technical education programs, and then scholarships to our teachers' academy. Hmm. And so this is this is forgive me, but this is all state revenue. So that would come back to local school systems in in a in through some sort of formula. Is that basically this would be new state aid for education, basically? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And and you have you have I presume like a hybrid funding where there's a I presume like a local property tax either applied by the schools or by the county that supports education as well as what comes from the state, right? Correct. Yeah, we have property tax and system in Arizona. Yeah. The the tactic of directing money to a thing like like education, it seems you know that's a widely supported issue area. Everybody says yes, I support education, and I think that we need to fund our schools. Here in Maryland, we saw uh, sports wagering was was on the ballot. It passed, but all the ads had to do with tying it, tying the revenue to education. We've had some issues here in terms of that money actually getting in uh, and going toward education. And Michael, maybe you want to talk about that a little bit, but I find <laughs> it, it's a very interesting tactic now. You're seeing all of these activities that states are considering. A lot of times it gets tied back to schools, and that's something that people can get behind and support. And then also maybe you get your teachers associations behind the issue if you're if you're directing it to the schools. So politically, I think it's an interesting tactic that's popping up all across the country. Definitely, we had we had some curious foibles here in in Maryland where we don't have the citizen initiative. So you can't just pass petitions and put a question on the ballot, but our state legislature can decide to put a policy question framed as a constitutional amendment, and that would require voter approval, it ends up being, for all intents and purposes, the same thing. So we've had, no joke, in the last, I don't know how long it's been, 10, 12 years, we've had three constitutional amendments on basically gambling revenues going to education. And Mm. the third of those three votes was basically, uh, okay, this time we really mean it that all this new money is going to be new education spending. It's not going to just get money from the general fund, which was, in effect, what was happening in, in Maryland. It's, it's, it's a weird story, but I think it goes back to Kevin's point that this is the way to sell your ballot question, is to attach it to a spending program that's you know, widely popular, and you can focus more daylight on that than the specifics of where the money's coming from. And that's that was definitely what we saw here with sports wagering. Yeah, I mean, in Arizona, we did that back, that kind of syntax back in the 90s uh, with tobacco. We put a, a premium on tobacco sales, and it was go- to go towards early childhood education for babies. Education wow. for babies, Michael, that's very important. We're, I, we're pro-babies over here in Maryland, too. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that's, and that's how they <laughs> sold that. So, Jen, what what are some of the other top priorities for your county officials there in Arizona? I mean, here in Maryland, we have a a legislative session that starts in January. We don't know exactly what that looks like. We've seen sort of an outline. Our House and our Senate have different ideas when it comes to what this looks like in terms of how they're going to function. Do you have an early legislative session in Arizona? Is this going to be a tricky budget year? Have they talked about whether or not they're going to convene some sort of a virtual session or have folks in the building. What's the landscape like there now in terms of your state legislature? Yeah, it's a lot of unknowns right now. Um, I'm, they will convene. Um, they have told us that they're going to make sure that everything is transparent, um, that there's not going to be committee hearings without testimony or anything like that, which was one of our fears as the lobbying community. 
Um, I know in the house they're putting up uh, plexiglass partitions all over the place to separate members' desks and things like that. But they haven't given, neither chamber has given any indication about how the public is going to interact with the legislative process. Uh, Mm -hmm. We do have a session that is supposed to start January 11th, I think, the second Monday in January or something like that. Um, So, yes, we're, 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 as a staff, ready to move forward. If someone would just tell us how to do that, we would be most grateful. (laughs) And what what do you expect being high-profile policy issues that that you and your colleagues will be weighing in on this year? You got hot stuff cooking over there? Yeah, I mean, there's two things that are really like standing out for us right now. We have had a longstanding lawsuit with the Trans Western Pipeline. Um, The Department of Revenue values them and they've been overvaluing them and thus they've been overpaying property taxes. And so now for since 2016, they keep winning lawsuits every year. Um, the counties and school districts have to pay back Transwestern. Mm. I mean, we're talking, it depends who you ask, right? Because nobody really knows for certain what the judgment amount is plus the interest, but it's anywhere between 25 and $45 million. And local governments and school districts are expected to just write a check and say, here, Transwestern, sorry, we collected too much money from you. Um, uh, yeah, it's a really high price ticket. And so, A, we need legislation to prevent the poor valuation moving forward. And then, B, some sort of relief package for these local governments and school districts because nobody has that kind of cash sitting around. That, that sounds extremely similar to a quirky tax issue mm. we got tangled up in in Maryland. Our counties actually levy an income tax of their own. And, uh, I mean... I don't know, the, the, the nerd alert is going off rapidly here, but um, without drenching you in details, we, got, we ended up going all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court on the nature of how should we deal with non-Marylanders, or I'm sorry, Marylanders who had income from out of state, and how do they get to you know, credit one thing against another, and does it have to apply against the county income tax? And we ended up with you know, a two or three hundred million dollar bill to foot that we're still trying to finance. It's it's been a, a it's been a nightmare. So well, I can't even imagine. Yeah. Yeah, but it, but it, but it traces the same sort of thing. An, an mm-hmm. administrative decision, not made by your local officials, and now you know you 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 made good faith decisions on you know, we're funding we're funding county programs with this money. Oh, lo and behold, we have to give refunds. But how do you? Yeah. Do that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and of course, Michael is referring to the the win decision, and it did have major implications for our counties. And and Jen, I'm interested too. I mean, I don't know if there's a concern in Arizona when it comes to the state the state shifting costs onto counties. It's something we've seen here before in Maryland when the state is in trouble with its budget. We know that COVID cases are spiking again here in Maryland. I know in Arizona as well, really nationally. And we're all waiting for Congress to take some action and provide more stimulus. I don't know what the budget picture looks like in Arizona, whether or not you all fear the state shifting costs onto counties. But is that something you think you'll be tangled up in when the legislature does come back in need? Are you worried about those shifts from the state to the counties? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we had so much money shifted to counties when the 2008 recession happened. And only in the last two years have we gotten the bulk of it unshifted, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so now we're facing this cliff where some of those, and they're fresh in the legislators' minds, some of the legislators are still there. So they remember, oh yeah, (laughs) 
we just asked the counties for $196 million. We can do that again. So we're <laughs> definitely worried. We're definitely worried about that for sure. Uh, sounds, sounds like a familiar refrain for Arizona and Maryland and probably many or most of our colleagues across this fine land of ours. Uh, um, that, that, that tenuous intergovernmental relationship, especially with finances, is always sort of looming in the background. So anything else that, that would be worth getting into with, uh, with your newfound friends in Maryland? We've got you know, the teeming <laughs> millions of Maryland policy wonks and nerds here. They're all taking notes and planning their trips to all these counties. We'll, we'll have to link a, uh, a map of Arizona in the, in the show notes so folks can follow your, your county references. But what, what, sure. else, uh, what else should we know about? What, what should we visit and that sort of stuff? You know, what's, uh, what's, what else is cooking out there? To do like for fun in Arizona, or you still want to talk policy stuff? Shoot, whatever you got. Well, so we have a really interesting policy situation. I'd be real curious to know if you have this in Maryland. We have uh, the way that our statutes are constructed. If you have someone who is incompetent, stand trial, but also non-restorable, we got to let you go. And there's a small population of these that are dangerous and incompetent, but non-restorable. So we have a couple of, there's only about, a, about 14 of them statewide, but these are people who have done horrible things, but maybe they have a traumatic brain injury. So you can, you know, they're never going to be restorable, right? There's lots of reasons why people aren't restorable. And the way that our statute is constructed, we have to let them go. And they reoffend, and it's a problem, but it's an ex expensive problem to fix because we don't know how long we would have to keep someone in the state hospital, for example, in order to keep them off the streets. That becomes a state cost. The legislature doesn't want to pay it, and yet it's probably worth it to pay it to keep, you know, people from getting murdered. And so this is an issue that our uh, county attorneys and our sheriffs, we've been working on it for years. We were actually making really good progress in 2020. And then COVID, and they shut the right. legislature down. And so now we're starting all over with brand new legislators. And it's, it's, it, everybody has that same reaction that I heard someone, I don't know, I don't yeah, know so, if you yeah. gasped, right? Yeah. But they have that same reaction, and yet we cannot get them past that reaction to realize the steps that need to be taken to fix it. Hmm. I didn't see that twist coming as that story was being unrolled. I, you know, I, I was assuming it was just going to be, and they end up in our county jail, and it's just not fair, like the usual county wine. But yeah, I no. didn't anticipate we just let them go. Just so, to let them okay. go. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. Wow. That's, yeah, that 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 probably won't be on my you know my my list of things to 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 go check out personally next time I visit. Exactly. But, <laughs> but okay, okay. So, so you you know, how about some stuff that we should check out the next time we're in Arizona? You you have a canyon, right? But you know that might be the the big attraction. But what about some off the beaten path kind of stuff? What would you recommend for folks who maybe after COVID, of course, are, are planning to head out to Arizona? Any can't misses that that you want to tell our listeners about, or Michael and I too? Sure. So in Southern Arizona, two things. Um, Karchner Caverns. It's this amazing maze of underground caverns full of stalactites and stalagmites that was discovered by some kids in a field a long time ago. And they managed to keep it a secret until, I don't know, I think in the 80s, and they developed it, and now it's a great tourist attraction. Um, amazing. Also, if you like wine, believe it or not, in southern Arizona, we've got some amazing vineyards uh, to visit. 
Uh, mm. So I would definitely check both of those things out in southern Arizona. Um, in northern Arizona, if you come in the winter, we actually have some decent skiing, believe it or not. Mm. Um, I know everybody thinks of Arizona as total desert, but we have lots of different climates here. And then in western Arizona, what we call the river counties, uh, the river flows through La Paz, um, Yuma, uh, and Mojave counties, and there's great water sports and boating, and uh, we have some boat, good boat races every spring and summer out there. So do here besides look at cactus. All right. Well, that, that, that sounds pretty good. Um, so, Kevin, if you don't mind my indulgence, I've been dying to ask. So what, what's the deal with the clocks? We were trying to organize things for this call, and I couldn't even figure out what time to invite you for, for this recording. So, so what do you all do? Do you just, like, sit out daylight saving time completely? Is that how it works? That, yeah, we literally don't change our clocks. Just, it's super easy. Just, just not doing it. I, I, we, I, I, I like the bold attitude here. Yeah, we just don't do it. And I'll tell you what, the one of the biggest fights I ever got in with my husband was over stupid daylight savings time. He's from California. And he used to say, when we first started dating, he would say things like, oh, well, Arizona changes to California time. I'm like, no, Arizona doesn't change. California right. changes. He's like, no, no, no. Arizona changes to California time or to Denver time. I'm like, nope. I don't think you know what change means. You are confused by the definition of the word change. That is not what Arizona does. <laughs> Arizona <laughs> so, stays the same, right? Arizona yeah, I, stays the same. I am super jealous of you in Arizona and also a friend of the podcast, Guam. Guam does also does not change their time. They do not participate in daylight savings time. Nice. This is, nice. yeah, this is something that we, we talked, I know we've talked about this on this podcast. I hate daylight savings time. It's time for it to go. <laughs> Especially yeah. with COVID, it's so depressing, right? It's so depressing. And maybe there was a, there's a little momentum now, I think, people, because of COVID, are, are sick and tired and fed up with daylight savings time. But I am super jealous that in Arizona, you guys just say, nah, we're not doing it. We're not doing it. You buck the trend. I think it's awesome. <laughs> yeah, Kevin, uh... I, I, yeah. I like it. I, I think this is coming together, honestly. You know how, you know, you know sometimes there will be these, like, celebrity cruise events where, you know, you get to go on a special cruise and there'll be like people from your favorite football team or that sort of thing. I'm, I'm thinking the Conduit Street podcast, we do a big travel venture and now it's all coming together. We want to we want to fly to Phoenix. We'll all hang out. We'll go visit wine country, Arizona, or maybe skiing. <laughs> like we got lots of options on our way to Guam. Because that's really where the, the, the Conduit Street faithful want to end up. We want to spend some time in Guam. So I, I, I feel like geographically, this is coming together really, really nicely. I like it. And let me sweeten, sweeten the pot even further. If, if I'm not mistaken, Hawaii also does not participate. So you could also stop off in Hawaii. We'll have to ask our board of directors if that's in the MAKO budget. But, but Jen, hopefully <laughs> we can get out there and we'll all go ultimately to Guam. Yeah, well, we'd love to have you anytime. This, this sounds very good. I like it. I, I, I do have one more question for you, Jen. I have a friend from Arizona. She was out here. She is definitely of age to drink, but her driver's license doesn't expire for like 400 years. And we went to a bar here and the bartender looked at her ID and I think it said expires in like whatever, 2050 something. And that's because in Arizona, you don't have to renew your driver's license until you're 65. Is that right? Which I also am, am pretty jealous of that as well, if that's the case, and I'm not mistaken. 
Yeah, we do have some long-term expiration dates, but you're supposed to go update your picture every, I think it's four or five years or something like that. So it's not like you are... 65 years old, well, whatever 65 minus 16 is. I don't do math. Um, but you know what I mean? Your picture is supposed to change. But yeah, I'm looking at my, I just pulled my driver's license out. We were talking, it expires in 2027, but it was first issued, you know, when I was younger. I'm not going to yes. say how old I am, but I was no, younger. No, we're not doing that. <laughs> it, 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 I have to think it creates problems for people who travel outside of Arizona if they want to have an adult beverage. And they show up and a bartender is like, what the heck is, what do you mean 2050, this idea expires? This can't be real, right? So I just think that's interesting. And I guess the whole idea behind that, uh, Arizona, you mentioned, you know, a lot of rural areas. And I guess the idea is we don't want people to have to keep traveling back and forth between the DMV, even though, as you said, you need to change your picture. Yeah, I don't know. Um, it's, I feel like it's been like that my whole life. So I don't really remember why it changed or when, but it's just normal for us. We don't change our time. We don't change our driver's license. That's it. Arizona to the beat of their own drum. And it's just like, yeah, like the independent spirit. (laughs) We hope that you stay safe and well out in Arizona. We wish you the best with your legislative session. We know we're dealing with a lot of the same issues. We can relate with you there, but best of luck. Hope you and your family stay safe and well amidst this pandemic. And Hope all of your county governments fare very well in the upcoming legislative session. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the invitation. I had a great time. Stay safe to all you guys as well. Thanks. Thank you so much. All right, we'll leave it right there. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way, all these episodes will be sent to the device of your choice. You can also follow along on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and of course, the Conduit Street blog. But for Jen and for Michael, this is Kevin signing off, and we will talk to you soon.